out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Hagar, The Wound, because I recently spoke to Karen Anston to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. For those who are wondering, Hagar the Wound. Yes, they were an English punk band, active between 1981 to 1987, and they reformed recently in 2011 and are still going to this very day. Part of the narco-punk movement. Indeed, I guess you'll be able to find out more information about them if you just Google away Hagar, H-A-G-A-R. You get the gist. Anyway, look, this is a fantastic interview, I say myself. Um, And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years. Karen, tell us more. I'm very ashamed to say that I used to listen to a lot of Capital Radio, and one of my first great loves was David Soul. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't allowed to watch Starsky and Hutch. But very swiftly, I think being in 64, I slightly missed going to see some of the very early punk bands and, you know, the starting the Sex Pistols and things like that. So one of the things that first grabbed me more than anything was Two-Tone. And the first gig I ever went to was at the Rainbow and it was the Two-Tone tour with the specials Beat, Madness and Selector. And I remember going at 15 and just being so excited. And so I absolutely loved Two-Tone. And Terry Hall was probably my first great musical crush after David Soul. Yes. so I think, sadly, uh, when you talk about missing out certain genres, I think I didn't discover Bowie. I didn't go through the glam stuff. I went straight for Scar, Two-Tone, then went into punk, kind of mainstream punk and the Clash, and then discovered Crass and things like that. And it's only later in life that I've discovered, you know, I missed out all that amazing music by Bowie and so many other things as well and kind of gone back and tried to retrace the steps and just wish I'd loved it at the time. Yes. So it made a big difference to me. Well, I suppose at the time, you know, Space Oddity probably got reissued. Mm. That was about 75. So by, in those days, buying a single was quite a big thing for various reasons. They had to save, like, the money, which took months. And then there not many record. There weren't many... There weren't record shops. You'd have to go into the town... And there would probably be a place that was sold, you know, sort of, I don't know, hardware, some washing machines, toasters, irons. Oh, and there's some records in the corner. I'll buy, I'll buy the, you know, with the top 40. And I think that's where I bought my early singles, really, was these kind of places. There wasn't like, there weren't record shops because places like that didn't exist in East Anglia, really, I don't think. You know. I mean, even in London, I mean, I grew up in South London and I remember buying my first singles from Woolworths in Peckham. And so it probably was a nicer experience than that. But still, I was buying them at the same time as Pick and Mix and things like that. And I do remember the excitement when the first Virgin Megastore opened. And, um, you know, that seemed enormous. But my great love, I suppose, in the 70s, later 70s, um, and early 80s was going to then see Rough Trade when it first opened in West London. And me and my friend who were obsessed with The Clash used to go and hang around. And we did genuinely believe all The Clash would walk in one day. <laughs> very, very sorely disappointed. So I think it was easier in London. But still, I, yeah, I started off in Woolworths too. Yes, well, absolutely. So with your David, your love of David Soul, Don't Give Up On Us Baby, Did you were you also like a bit David Essex, David... David um, Cassidy, Donny Osmond, the Bay City Rollers. 
I never really liked no I don't know what it was about David Soul and as I say thank very thankfully very quickly I did discover kind of good good music and I was very lucky my parents were hippies and they brought me up with a lot of you know music was very important even though I may not have liked um, Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell or things like that I grew up very much with a sense that actually music was a very important thing to enjoy and still actually one of my favorite albums the same as my parents which is Pet Sounds by Beach Boys so I had a lot of music to listen to at home and then I think I went fairly quickly from drippy drippy blonde men to to I think two-tone and early punk and and, and things like that yes blimey that's impressive actually because without dwelling too much on one's parents you know musical taste my parents were really into quite awful country and western actually so you know your parents being hippies was like wow that's cool my parents definitely weren't <laughs> but having said that it's given me a lifelong hatred of bob dylan because i was told all along that he was the best thing ever and actually bands later on in life like the Mekons, when they kind of went from being um they're kind of much earlier post-punk to alt country actually really helped me ignite a love of country music and inspired me to go and see Johnny Cash. And I still love a lot of alt country bands now. And so it's it's weird how these things change over time. Whereas I can imagine when I was 16 or 17, I would have thought country was the worst thing ever. Yes. Well, I mean, just briefly, I mean, I mean, I too sort of got into alt country later, mainly through John Peel, really. But it was kind of, I mean, my parents liked things like Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie oh, <laughs> and, and really twangy, twangy country with, you know, sentimental lyrics and stand by your man. It's like, OK, that's a bit weird. Um, so, yeah. So when did you discover, when did you start to think, actually, I could be in a band? When was that kind of moment where you started thinking, eh, you know, singing? Mm. it's quite a naked thing isn't it singing it it is I mean we didn't enter into it with much thought I have to say you mentioning John Peel reminds me that actually I have to give John Peel and and sometimes Annie Nightingale and Richard Skinner and things like that the Radio 1 DJs at that time did really open my eyes to so many bands and also give me the sense that some of them were very rough and ready but I think the thing that inspired me most to be in a band was that I started going to see anarchist punk bands and there, and at that time I started sixth form college, I met a number of people doing their A-levels, which I was then to start going and seeing a lot of anarchist punk bands with, and Crass as the kind of demigods of, of, of anarchist punk at that time, if that's not the correct phrase really given their anarchists but um, <laughs> they'd funded um a place which actually ended up in that in that lost venues book called the whopping autonomy center and it really was an amazing breeding ground for a band because there was rehearsal space they had gigs there every week and we could just see people we knew just getting up and deciding well we're going to play a gig and then it came up that Flux of Pink Indians were going to be playing in six weeks' time. And me and my friends from Sixth Form College said, ah, oh, we want to play too, partly because we fancied some of them. And we wanted to show off in front of them. But also we just thought, well, you know what, we can see lots of other people doing it. Why don't we do it too? And so we just said, yes, book us a slot. And we invented a name, which we're now still stuck with many years later, which is dreadful. And... Um, you know, and, we, and some of the songs we wrote in that six-week period, we still perform today. God, that's and, fantastic. But there really was a spirit then of anyone can do it. It's It was a very accessible art form because, obviously, 
as you can hear from our music and other people's at that time, it was very rough and ready. There wasn't a sense of you cannot, you can only go on stage when you are sufficiently accomplished. It was just the willingness to go up there, be seen, you know, and express yourself. And I think that was very attractive to angry 17 year olds who wanted to, you know, find a way to um, express themselves. Yes, well, absolutely. It's interesting because there had been, because there was a, I did an interview with a member from the band called The X who were based in Holland. Uh, So they they were very kind of there with the Chumbawamba going. And then there was like, uh, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it, who also kind of put their hand up to literally to do the same thing as you did. So, yeah, we'll be in, we'll go and play. He's like, oh, Christ, we haven't actually got a band. What are we going to do? Make noise. Good. Let's go. Let's go for that one. <laughs> and very much a sense of that then. I think that it was very democratic. There wasn't a sense so much of you had to be booked by promoters or you had to be, you know, you had to pass through hoops or you had to look a certain way. It was more just we're willing to be bottom of the bill. We're willing to do it the hard way, but, you know, give us a chance. And, you know, and it was very democratic. And that scene spawned some amazing things. People are still impressed that actually in the venue after that, that we used to play a lot, actually I then saw an amazing band called Kirkle from Iceland and the singer happened to be Bjork. Yes. And so, you know, I think she's probably the most famous person to come out of that scene. But, it, you know, it gave a fantastic way for her to come over, play in a different country and, you know, get experience of being in a band. And bizarrely, they were on the Crass Record label, weren't they? Mm, they were, yes. With no. Annie, Annie Anxiety, I think, as well, wasn't yes. she? <laughs> that was quite a scene. Because I've, you know, because sometimes, you know, having done this show quite a bit now, um, yeah, I... In a simplified way, you know, I always think of like, oh, there's the punk movement, then post-punk, and then indie. But I don't often mention, because that's good, that would make it far too complicated, because the post-punk was that gang of four and magazine and peel, which was quite kind of complicated and a bit scratchy, whereas the anarcho-punk scene was another kind of layer, you know, as with all these things, there's other things going on. So there, there was that sort of scene, which was very different to that kind of slightly complicated and a bit angsty and probably a bit... Hardcore on the drug scene, really. Most of them, not all of them, but quite a few. And it also depended on where it came from, because I ended up actually being friend, good friends with the Mekons and the Three Johns, and really loving the post-punk scene and Gang of Forum magazine. And they kind of, I suppose, came out of the art school movement, and they probably were, they probably had a lot more theory. They were probably much more assured. They obviously spent more time, sometimes more time learning to play their instruments, whereas anarchist punk was much more, I want to stand up and say something. I may not have a theory unless it was talking about smashing the system. And there really wasn't so much of an emphasis on being able to play any instruments whatsoever. Yeah, that, yes, that's true. But interestingly, people did get it together quite quickly because there was bands like the Astronauts, weren't there? There was oh, Blythe yeah. Power and... Um, Oh, my mind's gone blank. It's about there was kind of a, there were those kind of oh yeah the like sounds sounds and oh, yes, and the, yes. and the mob, um you know there were there was definitely I mean lyrically everybody not every yeah actually they did all have very good lyrics actually didn't they they did sing about something quite you know that was very important and and quite yeah kind of conscious raising you know kind of questioning yes. things so so there wasn't I, I yeah because because it's interesting with a lot of those post-punk bands they were kind of like complicated guitarists and drummers who were you know who went on to do amazing things but they were already amazing drummers who probably knew a bit of jazz you know thrown in there mm-hmm. as well 
with a very neurotic lead singer who probably was quite <laughs> difficult to work with, Johnny, Johnny Lydon. But, <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting that people like Joseph Porter had such incredible lyrics from a very early age, and same with the astronauts as well. So uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, the, con- the focus was very much on those, and obviously Crass as well. Lyrically, it was all, it was kind of, it was kind of really sort of quite intense, wasn't it? It was very intense, and obviously, I mean, we really looked up to them because they had this amazing communal lifestyle. But it was also—it was not just their views; it was the amazing artwork. We loved their approach. I mean, they were actually much funnier than people gave them credit. There was the fantastic exercise where they recorded a fake single about a wedding and released and got Loving magazine to release it as a flexi disc. You know, they were into situationist pranks and some of them had been in previous lives freeform jazz and, and poets and artists. So I think some, even though it was a rough and ready um, art film that grew up quite quickly, there were people who did probably have the same kind of skills and knowledge and background as post-punk, but probably chose to do it in a way that was more about not liking aspects of society rather than we hate Thatcher. I mean, they probably had some common goals as well. Yes. Well, I think with Penn or Penny, he was definitely a member of that sort of the beat generation, wasn't Mm. he? He did come from that world and he did have that sort of slight education about him. And um, and there was also his stuff with the um, with Wally Hope and the Windsor Free Festival, which all ended in a very messy way. Whereas and then Steve was a kind of very much from the working class kind of street, wasn't he? Who who definitely was wasn't going to. Well, he did because I you know I have spoke to him, so he did sort of start to consume all that kind of literature, but at an mm. older age. Whereas Penn and yes. various other members had it already in their DNA and was already you know they were quite comfortable with their, I suppose intellectual kind of theories in life confident I think they had confidence didn't they they did have confidence and I suppose they were older than us apart from maybe Steve and but the rest of us were much more raw and ready at 17 I you know I hadn't even seen that many bands play live so I really didn't have any real understanding about what it took to be on stage or really understand what to write about and very much at that time there weren't that many females in um punk bands apart from, uh, apart from uh, anarchist punk bands apart from obviously the exceptions of Eve Libertine um, and Annie Anxiety and so we did feel a bit at that time that the things that we chose to write about were perhaps seen as sillier than the more serious men who were writing about smashing the system and so we did feel slightly at a disadvantage but we decided what the hell we were going to write about what we knew about. Yes, because at that point there was the other scene that you'd had the, we'd had the dolly mixture or mm. dolly mixtures and then we had the raincoats up oh, and then yeah. the other band which was... Um, Tracy Thorne's first band, who, oh God, Marine Girls, hurrah. Yes, Marine Girls, yes. So, so there was definitely, because it's interesting, because I felt that the punk, I mean, at the time, actually, I was too young, really. I was only 12. I can't really. Yes. I was kind of more into ABBA at the time, probably, and I don't know, all that disco. I slightly, I had an older brother, to be honest, who was seven years older, and he was really into prog rock, and I'd sneak into his room and be blown away by these prog rock records when I was about 
from the ages of sort of 10 to 14, 15. And I find it really curious and interesting. And then he had a bit of heavy metal as well thrown in there. So it wasn't just kind of like ABBA and, and the top mm. 20. There was kind of Rick Wakeman and Yes and Genesis thrown in there. So I didn't, you know, I mean, punk completely passed me by, really. It was kind of, it was the early 80s when I started to get to that age of listening to John Peel that went, oh, this is very interesting. Mm. I must explore. So with, yeah, so you started in 1980, didn't you? Yes. So at that stage, had you had you committed to full time to be in the band or were you still doing other things at the same time? We were doing our A-levels at that time. And unfortunately, what happened was because we were all at, at sixth form college together, we then actually got so interested in being in the band that we failed all our A-levels and they had to go back and retake them. Um, so it, it was a bit of a bad combination, kind of breaking away from home, going to sixth form college, discovering all these fun people and then realizing that we could we had a good excuse to go out and play every night and drink cider and black so I failed all, all my A-levels and um, but that yeah that's what it really did was ruin my education temporarily yes I know cider and black classic <laughs> classic that's, that's up there with snake up there with snake bite wasn't it at a certain age very excited stuff but the one see the one thing is we did mention this venues earlier mm-hmm. and um what i sort of didn't realize until doing this show was that there was the gatekeepers which were phenomenally important and so at that point you know a every little every town and sort of big town and city had at least one venue didn't they they had an art yes. center they had some place that on a monday tuesday wednesday someone was putting on uh, some gigs and and so that kind of helped to create a scene then you had the music papers which like there were three or four you had phenomenal circulation you know from the nme to melody maker sounds and record mirror and then you had people like john peel as well which at the time even though I was listening to and recording the show on my trusty TDK D90 cassette, which was very exciting. I thought, you know, there's no one in my area that was particularly listening to that. So I was always a bit surprised when I went to a gig and was like, oh, there's 200 other people with, with um, poor social skills and no friends who also come to see this band. <laughs> I mean, when I explain it to my children who are raised on Spotify, they don't buy records. I explained that me and my sister used to spend our whole pocket money on buying the NME and we would sit there and I think it started to be the times when it became quite difficult with Paul Morley and everything was postmodern and stuff like that. And we used to sit there and read it together and we used to talk about it and analyse it and the, basically that issue of NME lasted for a week and yeah obviously you would talk at at college about what you'd heard on John Peel and things like that but also I think if you grew up in London I think you are really spoiled for venues there were just so many and also I think with Anarchist Punk there were a lot of squatted venues as well like the place we started um, Wapping Anarchy Centre started a squat there was a place called the Centro Iberico where Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV and people like that used to play as well so not only were we lucky enough to have an enormous amount of pubs that had fairly low overheads and were quite keen to bring us in just so they could sell more cider. But also there were squatted venues as well. But also we did have the opportunity to then go and play around in different places. But it is really weird to think we we played for five years, almost a gig every week. And actually most of them were in London because there were so many venues and so many opportunities. Yes, this is true. I know the squatting thing was quite extraordinary. Mm. 
I mean, every city had it, but but London especially, and they had something called was it the ambulance station, which became quite, yes. quite famous as well, which had you know quite a scene and and seeing all these posters of all the bands who played they think wow well that's where Kirkall played yeah no the ambulance I was really lucky because part of the time I lived in Elephant Castle and the ambulance station was on Old Kent Road and so yes I mean it was amazing and the price you know when I think of you know some gigs I went to see Nick Cave and it was 80 pounds you know most of those gigs there was a very high ethic about pay no more than and a limit I remember that actually me and the bass player Mitch left our band this was about after five years, over whether we should play for more than two pounds at Dingwall. So there was a very, very strong ethic that you didn't really make any money out of it. You were covering costs. You may get enough money to, you know, pay for your journey back home. But actually what you wanted to do is have cheap prices so as many people as possible would come to that gig and enjoy it and be inspired to be in a band themselves. Yes. God, we were so angsty, weren't we, in the 80s? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, we... <laughs> It's a very incredible time. I mean, ironically, a lot of the post-punk bands I went to see, and particularly things like the Three Johns and the Mekons and stuff like that, were because, unfortunately, it was the minor strike and Thatcher, and there were so many benefit gigs for so many bands. You, you know, your whole social life was mainly, when we weren't playing in gigs, it was going to see other benefit gigs for very good causes. You know, most musicians, you know, barely earned any money, but they were out there doggedly raising money for people such as the minor strike. But yeah, no, it was an amazing social scene. But also then you had a lot of universities as well. I mean, there was an amazing um, place called Thames Poly, uh, which again, used to put gigs on every week. And there was a fantastic double album that came out of that. And I was genuinely shocked when I spoke to a young student I was running with. And he said, he this was a few years ago, he went to university in London because he thought there would be a great nightlife, only to be told that the student union didn't want to put gigs on anymore because they didn't want to disrupt um, people, you know, getting up for work the next day. And I thought it's really, I think being a student there was much more fun and much more carefree and there was a lot more, you know, emphasis on fun and music and nightlife, which I, there isn't necessarily that student union ethic anymore about putting on endless gigs i know god i mean we moaned a lot in the 80s but then i realized being unemployed you could be on the job seekers allowance enterprise allowance um yeah unemployment and and you know basically like just here's the money just we'll take you off the figures and we moaned about that but then you look back and think, god that's amazing and then the students got a grant no wonder they didn't turn up for the second year <laughs> i mean it's incredible because um i at a bit later on, I had a boyfriend who was on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. And, um, you know, and he had an amazing office in the Brixton Enterprise Zone. And there were very good reasons why the Brixton Enterprise Centre was set up after the rights and things like that. But actually, the amount of creativity and people I know who went on to work in the BBC or went on to work in, in more mainstream arts and culture because they were given those, you know, some funding at an early stage to then explore what they were good at and, and do stuff is, is really incredible. And I do worry that although we were very lucky and we had a lot of opportunities, how much creativity is stifled now because people feel they need to get a job or, you know, they can't afford to be on the dole or they yes. should, you know, job seekers allowance and things like that. I think it's much 
much scarier now than it used to be. I lived in a squat and then a housing cot for many years. I got dull money. There was no pressure on me. It was very easy for me to be in a band, but I don't think it's the same for people nowadays. No, it's really tricky. But look, so the man who, who or one of the people who sort of completely influenced so many people, John Peel. Now, you got a oh. session with John Peel, oh. which, which must have been a bit sort of mind-blown when you got the, the call and the offer. It, and you also got the chance to work with the famous Dale Griffith, who most people didn't have a great time with. <laughs> I always love to tell the story. As as um, anarchists living in a squat um, with not very much money, living off lentils, I think, to be honest, on the actual day of doing it, the most exciting thing was that we got to eat in the BBC canteen all day and the food was amazing. So I remember eating a lot. But Dale Griffin was terrifying. He told us we were the most incompetent band that he'd ever been. We'd never, you know, we had recorded a very rough and ready single. We really didn't know what it was like to be in a recording studio at all. And, you know, he, he was known for working with all these prog rock people. And he did genuinely just tell us part of the way through that we were the worst band he'd ever worked with. <laughs> and... It was awful. And I also was gutted because I thought you'd get to meet John Hill as well. Yes, but I know. said that, we earned £250, which was possibly still the biggest amount of money I've ever earned at one, at one fell swoop. But it was between us, but it was a long time ago. So it was an amazing experience for any, any band that was opposite. And also... I actually got to meet the great man himself then about a month later and I ran up to him at a gig and I went, I'm in this band and you gave us a session. And he and he looked petrified <laughs> and he said, I must go to the toilet. And I never saw him again. Oh, how blessed. Actually, because actually everyone has a bad experience with Dale Griffiths, apart from I think one person who said... He was a drummer and, and afterwards he said, if, you, if you're going to take it seriously, you need a better drum kit. But he, you know, but everyone else go, God, he just hated us and probably said the same thing to every band he ever saw. I don't know why he did that job, because it must have been all no. these all these people that he went, I was in Mot the Hooper once. I was a professional and I've got to play with you guys. Someone something has to pay the rent. Clear that he didn't want to. <laughs> and I must admit, I think we then had me and um the bass player Mitch, we then had the exciting experience of doing backing vocals for a Three John session. And we had, I think we had the misfortune of having him again. And I think he got so cross with me and Mitch and trying to do the backing vocals. He actually started conducting us. And in the end, he went, you're not so crap after I spent an hour getting you to sing. And so it was slightly better second time around with the Three Johns, but it was still was quite an intimidating experience but yes. it was worth it for the free well nearly free food at the bbc and going to made well this is amazing yes. it is good stuff so look when you were yes the band were forming because normally it takes a couple of years i mean i didn't realize this until i was doing these interviews most bands have a five-year narrative they kind of get together and they they you know have that vague honeymoon period of 18 months and then they get a, a play on the john peel show the john peel session that first album things are slightly better than they they become <laughs> and then the tricky second. so how how was it progressed with you because by then you'd obviously been together in a slight marriage um with the with with the you know the, the group and sort of creating something and sort of trying to hold it together while the pressures of life and youth was kind of um on top you know so there was a certain ego enthusiasm naivety mm. all mixed together with some quality barley cup probably I think you've really got it on the five-year um, 
limit because that's probably exactly how long we lasted first time we lived with each other we studied together we then formed a band with each other we lived with each other we were in a squat and then a housing co-op together and in the end that and playing gigs and in the end it just became too much you just felt like you saw them all the time and as I say we fell out over something very silly about the entrance price of um, going to play at Dingwalls and to my biggest regret I just stormed off and I refused to see them again for quite a number of years which I really regret now and it was only we then kind of really really didn't stay in contact apart from those of us who were still friends with each other for about 15 years and then we heard that someone else um some alex from mississippi was going to re-release our old recordings and so we thought oh well let's get back together and you know just have a drink and, and reminisce about the good old time and we realized that we'd just been very silly falling out with each other over very silly differences we had such a great time having a drink together then when the record finally came out, we then had the opportunity to play one gig supporting the mob and we'd always loved the mob. They were always one of our favourite bands to play with. And so after 25 years, I faced the trauma of having to get on stage again at the Fleece and Firking in, in Bristol and play a gig. And it was one of the most terrifying nights of my life. <laughs> it's very different playing a gig, I think, when you're 15 than when you're... 17 very very different and but we loved it so much we've actually stayed together ever since and we've now been together it's eight or nine years lot and far longer than we've ever been before but now we live in different towns most of us we play gigs until the pandemic about once a month and we really really love working together and i think it's the wisdom of age and the fact that it's now just an extremely nice hobby, which is what keeps us together, something to really enjoy together. Yes, I think, I think, um, bizarrely, I think it takes um, 25, I think the other theory I've got is this 20, 25 to 30 years is often just enough time for people to vaguely bury the hatchet. And then they go, oh, actually, okay, what did, what did we fall, about, fall out about? And it's like, you wouldn't believe it, and you think I probably would. Actually, it was probably over nothing, and it's true, isn't it? So did, oh, that must have been. So, did you record much else during that time? Because you've kind of had a compilation that came out before your early stuff, didn't you? Yes. So what we did is there was a compilation of the older recordings. Then we also decided to do one that was actually based on. Then we made a single um, for all from all for all the Madman records as well. And what we then decided is we got permission permission to use some of that and some of the old recordings. And we actually made an, a, a kind of compilation of our own called Hagitate. Because what we realised is that actually it's still very hard to make any money out of music. And actually, if we had one record that we were putting out ourselves and when we covered the cost, we were making some money back. We could actually put it towards paying all our travel costs because we now spend our life on trains and in travel lodges. We don't make any money. We, in fact, lose money. But actually, at least we've got a means of um, financing some of it. But also, subsequently after that, we released some, new, we wrote some new material and our fabulous guitarist, Steph, her and her partner, Oscar, from Anthrax set up this great record label called Grown Your Own Records, which has just been an amazing lifeline for so many 
bands and they put out our most recent record Hagitate and they're fantastic to work with but also just so encouraging they do it for the complete love of music their whole house is just completely overtaken with you know they do every bit themselves from cutting out the cardboard stapling all the stuff up you know whenever you go there all all of the artwork is all over the tables and stuff like that and so actually again we've written more stuff second time around um and we're really yeah enjoying our our association with grow your own records as well which i think is just a a pleasure to work with yes and how did the how did you how did the other members of the band feel when when it kind of split up because when you walked away did everyone else think um that's it as well we're all walking away because i can't be bothered no they didn't they carried on and got a new singer in and they carried on for a bit and also then i'm a bit hazy on this because my memory is appalling um the drummer and one of our guitarists turned into a band with another really good singer called Julie, and they turned into a band called We're Going to Eat You, which was a much more poppy um, band. And so uh, they carried on working together and um, for a number of years as well. And so, they, yeah, they carried on without it. It was me and Mitch who left first, rather crossly, <laughs> in a very silly way. And um, yes, they carried on and then formed into another band as well. Right. Blimey. It's quite it's not quite Fleetwood Mac, but it's quite complicated, isn't it? (laughs) I think these things are. I think if you do something at 17, it's very different from when you do something in your 50s. Very, very different. So when you when you kind of came back together, was it with the core of the original band without the people who joined when you left? Yes, no, it's actually, it is the court that what we, the only reason why it's, it, it was slightly different is when we first started, we tried to be an all-girl band and we couldn't find a drummer, so we recruited um, a, a drummer called Scarecrow, but we were trying to be a women-only band. But as time went on, a, a number of people, someone left, um, Janet, Steph joined. So, but actually what we consider to be the core band are then the band that reformed now. And so, you know, that has been one, I think the loveliest thing about it is just, you know, reconnecting with them, working with them again, and just rediscovering how much, you know, it's so much fun to do stuff with. And it's just really nice to have all that shared history. And I think it's made it much more fun than trying to find other members of a band. Having said that, because our drummer, our, our main drummer, Chris Liberator, is also a techno DJ. We do also have a roster of other lovely drummers who stand in as well, because I think drummers are always in demand, and so it's always best to have a spare. Yes, and, and, <laughs> and, and it's surprising how many people say, God, you just, you know, a, a good drummer can really make a, oh, God, make yes. a band. It's kind of, it's amazingly important. Did you feel... When you were in those sort of the wilderness years, was there always that feeling in the back of your mind, you know, kind of something that felt a bit incomplete? And then when you came back and sort of not patched up the band, but sort of the kind of relationships and connections, did you feel like actually that's that's been quite without sounding a bit like your parents or their friends, a healing process? It's very strange for someone who music has always been probably the thing I've loved most in life. When I stopped being in a band, I didn't miss it at all. And I became very immersed in work. I then became and later on then went to have, went on to have children. And so even though I've 
since time immemorial have bought a record every week, bought the music press, gone to loads of gigs. Weirdly, I didn't miss being in a band until it was suggested we do it again. And actually, I found how much more I love it second time round. So no, I didn't miss it, but I've it's been astonishing how much I've enjoyed it this time round. I don't think I really remember much of it first time round because I was too drunk. Yes. This is this is this is probably very true, and also it's, I don't know, it, it must, I say it must, but it might not be, but it, you know, really connecting with various people and knowing what's happened with each member mm. between then and then now, because you know whatever happens, you know there are things that do happen, you know, from just the growing period for for mm. all, of, all of us, you know, people's parents, pets, you know, I mean, obviously the menopause, everything kind of like blimey, I didn't realize that happened when you know when when you're in your teen, twen- teens and 20s it's kind of hard to think about all these serious things like pensions as well you know it's oh, like God, no oh, <laughs> I mean, no i know it's it is very funny to look at ourselves and some of the songs we've written now are actually about you know being a middle-aged woman and also just it, it, it is slightly ludicrous i am sitting here i've got a, a collection of offensive t-shirts i am wearing one that says i heart my vagina my children are deeply embarrassed about what I do. They're 16 and 20. Um, but actually, that's one of the things I enjoy about it is it's not what you imagine um, a middle-aged woman to take up doing again. It gives me a great interest out of, you know, I have lots of very staid middle-aged enjoyments like going to the allotment, uh, you know, working hard and things like that. And it's it's something that I get to do where I go off and behave extremely badly somewhere, show off, have fun, reconnect also not just with my own band members but there are lots of other bands that we used to play with like anthrax and the mob and you know go back and hang out with them you know it, it, a large amount of it is an excuse to go off and have fun yes well it's interesting because I, I know you know a few years later um there was the sarah records stable and there was people like amelia fletcher who was in Tallulah gosh and i mean she sort of managed to sort of have a day job doing that and then in the evening that's her day job is being a musician you know and and when I interviewed her, she said, yeah, you know, that she's passionate with both of those things. One is mm. quite, and they're very different kind of, but, you know, both are very important and, and continually wanting to always, you know, trying to record and write a new album and new kind of, yeah, new material. And I suppose, you know, thinking of people like Iggy Pop and the Rolling Stones and David Bowie to some degree, it kind of keeps, you know, that creativity can be an ex- not an escape as in you know like your day job is so awful but just kind of give you that motivation to feel kind of like kind oh, of that's quite alive again so it's mm. incredibly important I know Grayson Perry often talks about the creative process doesn't he oh it's what I mean I've been what I've been genuinely shocked about the lockdown is just how much on a really visceral level I have missed music I watched Glastonbury online on iPlayer and I just sat there and cried particularly through the David Bowie one because of obviously what we've lost as a great artist but also just seeing people up on stage and I yeah I miss every bit of it I miss the excitement of knowing I'm going to play I miss the actual being on stage but also the social aspect the seeing the people a couple of weeks ago it would be on the main punk festival that we play at Rebellion you know and it's all those connections you make with people the people that come and see you and the bands that you go and see and I have found you know it's been one of the worst aspects of lockdown for me and I you know I can't wait to be in a rehearsal room. I want to hear a drummer play drums really loudly. All the things I thought that would annoy me, I have missed on a desperate level while being stuck at home. Yes. And I I mean, have you sort of occasionally sort of thought, um, 
I suppose in a way about the legacy of the band, because if it had just finished then, it would probably just have disappeared a bit. But you know, mm. and I often think about the legacy of you know bands because sometimes you realise, God, actually certain people are going to slightly slip, mainly because there's just so much of it. But you know, it's a bit like Cirque du Soleil doing the Beatles production. I'm sure the Beatles will always be popular, but you know, there's like, oh yes, that's quite handy. Or Meatloaf had a musical, Bat Out of Hell, didn't he, or something mm-hmm. like that. And and sort of so that legacy can continue. Whereas you know, some bands, if if something doesn't happen, they're gonna they're gonna become just a very cult small band, and it's like, oh, it's a bit of a shame. Well, it's not a shame, but you know, but have you felt that because you've come back and and you've sort of tidied up a compilation and you're now playing live again there is kind of been a bit more interest in the band and the fact that you definitely I think people are genuinely shocked particularly if you tell them that you had a break for 25 years I think the rest gave us an opportunity to actually learn to play our instruments and improved our creative process but I also think we've actually learned to enjoy it a lot more and appreciate it I think because we have to make a big effort to do it um we live you know, across the South Coast, London, Aberystwyth, you know, we, we are a very spread out band and we have to make a lot of effort to get together and play. So I think we treasure it far more than we did when we were all living together in the same squat in New Cross. And so and so I'm really glad we got the opportunity again. I'm glad we've got to record the songs we have did and have the experiences but also, you know, I, yeah, I would urge any band who feels that they haven't quite, you know, done as much as they wanted to try it again if you want to and just really enjoy it this time. And, and, you know, and I don't think we've had to worry because we were never a very big band. We've never had to really worry about making money out of it or whether we were going to be famous or anything. Our motto has always been just to really enjoy it and, you know, ha- have a good time. Yes, because, because just slightly going back, so... You know, that, that, you know, you had the anarcho punk scene and then sort of 83 to 87 is a real <clears throat> in the indie pop years, mainly because mm. of the Smiths. Let's face it. They came along and there was a lot of those jingly jangly. But then you had in America, you had, you know, people like Huskadoo came along oh. and then you had um, Bad Brains and Big Black and people like that. Did you sort of sometimes think, oh, God, I wish we'd managed to sort of hold it together a little bit and then we could have found our next tribe of people a bit like you know sonic youth and the buttholes and stuff like that or was that something that just didn't sort of come into your kind of thought i think it's something i only realized afterwards that there were so many things that came after like riot girl and things like that and i just think oh god yes perhaps if we had held out a bit longer perhaps we would have found other people we wouldn't have felt so alone because there weren't as many women artists at the time doing punk and things like that but I think we weren't thinking about our future. I suppose that was the most nihilistic thing about us. We were doing it for as long as we wanted to do it, and then we couldn't stand it anymore. And so I think we weren't really thinking about that. And I think if we'd had a more meditated game plan or we were trying to get more popular, then we may have carried on. But I think it would have showed in the way we behaved and performed. And so, you know, it may not have worked anyway. But I think it's only afterwards that you can see that, oh, perhaps we could have connected to such and such thing. And it is very nice sometimes when people come up to you in, in um, much younger bands and say, oh, you know, we found your record by accident and, oh, you were doing this, you know, way before we heard other bands. And that's really nice. But I think, we, yeah, we did it for as long as we could face doing it first time round, and we weren't really thinking about whether whether it was going to last. Yes. So coming to the current day, when you when you sort of think, right, we're going to potentially you know record some new material what's the general process because there's you know there's six of you in the band Mm. and I just wondered if there's anyone who says right 
I've got the lyrics. I've got, you know, someone else got the music or, you know, I just wondered how that sort of process happens. I, I think it is divided into the people who like writing the lyrics and the people who like writing the music and someone like me who has got absolutely no musical talent. There is nothing I could I, I could do to contribute to it. But it generally tends to work that pe- someone will write some music and then go, oh, uh, so, uh, sorry, write some lyrics. And then we'll say to someone else in the band, oh, look, I've got this. Can you think of, you know, something that will turn this into a song? I'm also very lucky that my partner plays guitar. And so I've written a few songs for the band. And so I make him sit there <laughs> and come up with guitar riffs for me just because I don't have any, uh, you know, my musical, t- musical. T- so it kind of shifts for each song. But there are kind of, yeah, a, a usually a pattern of someone writing the lyrics and then someone developing the music to go with it. Yes, that's quite nice. And just um, and if you could say, you know, if, you know, with all these years and decades of life, I mean, what would you, what would you have liked to have said to you say your eighteen year old self, you know, just starting out, and you were thinking, just that one thing that I would have just kind of whispered to them, you know, just as they were, just wandering around, going on stage or going, you know, yeah. going in the studio. I just wonder if there was something that you'd have just said. I think I wish I'd enjoyed it more realized you know what a privilege it was and also i wish i kept more mementos at the moment we're doing a thing where um a friend of ours mick slaughter who's married to janet who used to be in our band and now ruth our other singer have found a lot of old photos and we're putting them up on instagram and facebook partly because at the moment we can't actually do anything else because we're not functioning but it's really nice to see those old pictures and see how extreme we looked and I wish I'd appreciated it more at the time I think at the time you're just in that moment and you really you know you don't think about what you're actually really doing and how many experiences you're having I think I appreciate it much more and I would also say to anyone who's doing it now maybe don't live with the band and spend all your time with them and just learn to love them and, yeah, don't get cross with them. <laughs> yes. I think it was Throbbing Gristle. They were quite extreme, weren't they? They, they yes. used to put all their clothes in a box and then just put on whatever they wanted to in the morning. I thought, God, that is an extreme community. Yes. <laughs> we were never like that. But, we, but you, know, we, you know, the ones of us who lived together in the squat, we did eat together all the time. We played gigs. We rehearsed. You know, we we did our A-levels together, you know, we did just spend 24-7 with each other and in the end something had to give, but now we we love each other. Yes, that's absolutely, because, and you, you've obviously seen these, and actually they've been viewed a lot, these little clips on, well, not little clips, but the songs on YouTube, they must have blown your mind when you saw Dress to Kill. From... It's very weird, I know. And again, I particularly enjoy it when I try and show it to my children and they just, they look in horror and I think they just cannot look at you know their middle-aged mother and think that I was once someone who had big sticking up hair and you know and I say I was your age when I did that I was your age when I did a John Peel session you know that kind of thing and they just think yes so I'm, glad, I'm glad they survived I'm glad there is a you know but mainly I think god I would look so much better than and I wish I'd appreciated it <laughs> I think when you're 18 you, you I think you're very awkward and you, you're not very sure of yourself and things like that and I think when you're 55 and you look at that you think Christ the band did have an amazing it. the band did have an amazing style though um I the, think it was very born out of not having very much money and um dressing largely from jumble sales but actually now one of the things that we're notorious for is that our bass player Mitch 
wears he's always worn extremely peculiar clothes he's a very individual looking man um but for the first five years or six years of us being in the band together he's worn the same suit which is this horrible furry green and black outfit and he actually wore it until it um has fallen apart and it's now being turned into an altar at a finnish church in in south london and so i'd say probably even now we probably have quite a distinctive style um it may be different from our early style which was jumble cell clothes and now i think it's rude t-shirts and very bizarre suits yes absolutely because this is kind of just this is Cherry Red Records. Are they? Do they still kind of own your publishing, or do they just have some sort of I don't know stuff? I just terrible. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We've never we've never made any money out of any of it. That's, that's all I have to know. We actually had a very funny moment in that one of our um, most well known old songs called "Dress to Kill." It was inspired, uh, only inspired by a riff. Um, from Boney M and um, Boney M actually were um, sued by a German band for this particular riff as well and we then found out that this band are trying to sue us as well and we were laughing about this because we thought we've never made any money out of music so being sued by a band who've sued Boney M is quite a surreal experience. Yes absolutely and just I mean you probably get asked this but how did the name of the band come together? Oh it is one of the things that I wish we'd thought about more. I think the trouble is if you form in the space of six, you know, having a gig in six weeks, you never imagine that you are going to have to explain 35 years on why you did it. it as we always say, it was a feminist statement and Hagar was a biblical character and it's something to do with surrogacy. And I have no idea why we chose it. And I think lots of the names that at that time were particularly peculiar. And also today we play with some very interesting new name bands. But if we'd known that we were going to be stuck with it for that long, we would never have chosen it. And we've had to learn to embrace it, which is why we called our album Hagitate. And we now call us, we tend to refer to ourselves as the hags. The hags, yes. So we don't ever have to mention the womb. <laughs> yes, because I was thinking, oh, the womb-born. I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, no, oh, no there's no whale, is there? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was a feminist statement, but I can't remember why. I know. Well, I suppose the thing with Chumbawamba, it's quite a nice word to say, isn't it? Yes. And you don't no, really, you know, you don't really yeah, care what it means. Or the mob, they're short and snappy or crass or things like that. I don't know why we went for a long name and particularly one that mentioned a womb. <laughs> yes that's life isn't it we do these things i mean like you said you think this is no one's going to be interested because it's going to be over in six months time yes not three decades later <laughs> no <laughs> oh four actually isn't it Jeez. oh my god don't, i'm very old yes well we're the same age aren't we, we are the same yeah and that is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. Anyway, that was Karen Amston from Hagar the Womb. A big thank you for uh, giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, you'll be able to find out more information of them um, on Facebook, and they've probably got a website. Just, you know, Google away. Burrow down. Do it. You can do it. We all do that kind of stuff. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some random reason, hopefully positive, otherwise don't bother, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86show. And uh, yes, it's all good. And um, all these shows have been archived and you can find those on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes. Check it out. It might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week.
Stay safe.